Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello, and welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. This is Episode 3, What is Work? Part 1. The question, what is work, may seem an odd, even foolish question to ask. After all, we all know what work is, right? But it turns out that defining what is and isn't work turns out to be an infuriatingly elusive exercise. This is in large measure due to the fact that most of us have an instinctive response to the question, what is work? Most people tacitly grasp what work is, we just have an enormously hard time shaping that insight into a coherent definition. It's a bit like Augustine's lament when he was asked to define the nature of time. If no one asks me, he wrote, I know. But if I wish to explain to him who asks, I know not. Ask most people the question, what is work? And you'll probably get a response something like, it's what we do to earn a living. In other words, work is waged labour an activity for which we receive payment and which allows us to pay our bills and buy consumer goods. But this reduction of work to waged labour discounts many forms of unpaid activity that also count as work, caring for children, for example, or housework. It also reflects a patriarchal bias in which these discounted forms of work are also largely performed by women. Real work, the unspoken assumption declares, is work that is performed by men. Other factors in the difficulty of defining work include the sheer ordinariness and familiarity of work. It is such an intrinsic part of our daily experience that when it comes to trying to define what work is, it is often difficult to see the wood for the trees. We are too familiar with, too close to the subject, to be able to see and name it for what it is. The ongoing transformation of work, especially due to technological change. What work looks like to modern generations is radically different to what it was for our grandparents and for what it will be, assuming a phenomenon called work still exists, for our grandchildren. The fact that even within the same cultural and social context, what one individual experiences or regards as work will often differ widely from what another individual experiences or regards as work. Defining work is often a matter of subjective analysis. In addition to these factors, we have to contend with the issue of the value-loading of language. To say that something is work is not only to categorise a particular activity, 
it is to ascribe an often positive value to both the activity itself and the one by whom it is performed. In a similar vein, the reverse is also true for words like unemployed and unemployment. Likewise, someone who is described as only a housewife is both being demeaned personally as well as having the value of their work discounted or excluded altogether. The point which the issue of the value-loading potential of language illustrates is that there is a distinct connection between the common definition of work as waged labour and the exercise of social and economic power. Remuneration for work gives access to social amenity and personal resources, and both the fact of remuneration and its empowering nature skewer the balance of power in favour of those for whom work produces income. Thus, the idea of being gainfully employed further entrenches the devaluing of certain forms of work, as well as those by whom it is performed, and, and exacerbates exclusion from social and personal agency. This prejudice facilitates the exploitation of vulnerable sectors of society, especially women, migrant workers, and the un- or insecurely employed. Beyond this, when attempting to define what work is, we must always be careful we do not fall into the trap of drawing on historically and culturally specific or dominant concepts that belong to a narrow sectional context rather than to the inherent nature of work itself. The fact that most, if not all, people associate at least some of their experience of work with drudgery, oppression, and a lack of fulfilment does not mean that work is necessarily or inherently any of these things. If it were, the fact that some or even many people find their work to be engaging, liberating, and fulfilling would be an impossibility. And yet, Many Indo-European languages etymologically associate work with slavery, imprisonment, or being weighed down by a heavy burden. This is not to deny the fact that, historically and contemporarily, vast swathes of humanity have and continue to experience work as exactly these things. Rather, it is to make the point that none of these realities are necessarily characteristic of work, a point that directs us toward how the reality of work might be made more human. Similarly, the very fact that a theology of work demands a Christian understanding of what work is cautions us that we cannot associate our definition of work with any prevailing political or economic ideology. For example, any Christian definition of work cannot reduce work to a narrowly capitalist conception of work as the exchange of labour for remuneration. The theology of work can never be concomitant or complicit with any given ideology's emphasis on what constitutes real or valuable work nor can it share any economic system's tendency to commoditize work. There are many forms of work that are simply not reducible to a means of exchange. 
Finally, we have to contend with the propensity toward the confusion or interchange of words. Terms like work and employment do not necessarily mean one and the same thing, despite the close ties between the two, which are part and parcel of modern economic ideology. Not all gainful employment is waged labour, and one can be employed, that is, have one's time occupied by some activity, without that employment being work. An afternoon spent gardening, or constructing a model, or indeed producing a podcast, can arguably be construed as variously work and employment, or as employment but not work, or as work that may or may not be gainful employment, regardless of whether or not any remuneration results from the activity. In defining what work is, we must not assume that terms like work are necessarily synonymous with any other given term. The difficulty with trying to define what work is is exacerbated by the widely recognised centrality of work to human life. In his papal encyclical Laborum Exercens, issued in 1981, Pope John Paul II declared the reality of work in human life to be of fundamental and decisive importance. Indeed, John Paul went so far as to declare work to be grounded in the very fabric of human life and the key element in the question of social ethics and the humanization of life. As such, John Paul asserted that the reality of work was central to the life and mission of the Church. Likewise, the American sociologist Robert Bella, in his book Habits of the Heart, published in 1985, argued that work constituted one of the key elements for the reinvigoration of civil society, provided it was intrinsically interesting and valuable. For Bella, in order to maximise the revitalising potential of work, what was required was not further fine-tuning of economic institutions, but a wholesale change of the way in which work in human life was understood and valued. The reality that both John Paul II and Robert Bella alluded to is the fact that work's centrality in modern life goes beyond its capacity to provide income from which to sustain physical existence, meet financial commitments, or access social amenity and agency. Work has become central to human identity, that is to say work, chiefly in the form of waged labour, though as already noted this represents the bias of prevailing economic ideology, has become the primary means through which humans assess both their own worth and value, as well as the worth and value of others. In other words, work has not simply become a framework through which people construct their self-understanding, rather it has become the lens through which that self-understanding is examined, relegating all other perspectives to, at best, a marginal place in our worldview. Moreover, the truth that both laborum exercens and habits of the heart point to 
is that this centrality, despite its potential to humanise and revitalise human life and civil society, are in fact doing the opposite. Why is a matter of some importance, because it goes to the heart of the dilemma of any attempt to define what work is, and its role and significance in human life. My colleague and friend John Bottomley, in his book Hard Work Never Killed Anybody, and yes, the title is meant ironically, traces the emergence of this centrality to three key historical developments. The first is the scientific revolution that emerged from the periods now generally known as the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Although, as the philosopher and historian of science John Hannam notes, the idea of a pre- and post-Enlightenment, when science wasn't and then was being performed, is in fact a myth, Bottomley's point is that the scientific revolution was itself part of an emerging worldview which argued that all the secrets of the observable universe were discoverable by human reason and inquiry. This being the case, the superstition of religion could then be safely consigned to the dustbin of history as irrelevant to humanity's inner life and being. Concomitant with this first development, Bottomley notes that this scientific revolution privileged the knowledge of objective facts over human emotion by locating facts in the rational public world of science while relegating human emotions and beliefs to the private world of home and family. In this relegation, we see the beginnings of the bifurcation that privileges the public world of work, that is to say waged labour, over the private world of domestic labour. Thirdly, Bottomley argues that the assertion of human reason over human emotion facilitated the view that a superior explanation of human affairs could be obtained from scientific methodologies than could be offered by religious cosmologies. Philosophers like Descartes argued that human reason alone could chart a path for human progress, obviating the need for any divine authority or providence in human life. From these historical developments emerged the myth of the autonomous individual, who, through the heroic application of reason, and much later as in Nietzsche's philosophy willpower, could tame reality to suit their own purposes and preferences. At least that's the attractive selling point. The marketed version that is packaged and presented to the world as an inevitable universal truth from which there is no possible deviation. What remains unspoken, however, is that the cult of the autonomous individual demands of every person an unequivocal commitment to work as the all-encompassing provider of personal and social progress, progress being defined both as consumer spending power and as legitimacy in the eyes of society. Only when one is able to consume as a consequence of one's participation in the process of production is one able to hold one's head up and say, 
I am a true citizen, I am a morally superior being. Those who do not cannot, and it is work that is the vehicle for this affirmation and self-realization. But this is pure ideology, and as Bottomley notes, drawing on the work of Louis Althusser, ideology is a program that seeks to draw an imaginary relationship between itself and the actual reality experienced by individuals. Moreover, the power of this ideology revealed itself to Bottomley when he was minister of a congregation in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne. This was at a time when most women still remained at home, performing the unpaid work of child-rearing and housekeeping, while men were largely absent during the day engaged in waged labour. Bottomley noted that many of these women were suffering from feelings of depression, loneliness and isolation, and further engagement with them led to the establishment of a women's research group facilitated by two sociologists. Participants in the research completed a diary over a seven-day period, then engaged in group discussions. This revealed that women spent just over 55 hours a week in the work of childcare and housekeeping, and for those women who also had part-time paid work, the average was over 60 hours per week. By any measure, this is a crushing work burden for any person to have to endure. Little wonder the women concerned were suffering from stress and depression. But Bottomley discovered that what was really crippling for these women was that the sense of themselves as good housewives was constantly being undermined by the harsh reality of their working lives. The autonomy they experienced as housewives, that is, the capacity to control and choose what they did with their time, was being negated by dehumanising realities, such as having to always be the first person in the household to get out of bed every morning. In other words, the good life, which seemed promised by the performance of hard work, and which formed the basis of these women's sense of self-identity and self-worth, had proved not only illusory, it was in fact spiritually and existentially devastating. Bottomley had exposed the fact that the forces which proclaim hard work to be the primary vehicle for human self-worth are in effect eliciting a commitment to the idea that such work will produce the fruits of human fulfilment. The British academic Peter Fleming calls this appropriating process biopower. That is to say, a process in which the human bios, or life itself, is co-opted in order to reduce the whole of living to a single process of production. In other words, our capacity to self-organise, to be resourceful, and to exercise social ingenuity is harnessed to the prerogatives of the institutional will or in the service of some societal myth and exercised on a constant basis. This, in essence, is the foundation of the 24-7 economy. The tragic irony, of course, 
is that the revolutions of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, which promised the liberation of the human spirit, have led instead to the enslavement of the human person to a one-dimensional conception of work. Work is central to human life, but that centrality has become the centrality of the cult of personality, of the great dictator whose image stands on every street corner and on the mantelpiece in every lounge room. Waged labour has become the big brother of George Orwell's nightmare 1984, staring out at us with unblinking and merciless eyes. And just like Winston Smith, who ultimately not only reconciles himself to the inevitability of tyranny, but actively endorses that inevitability as being in the best interests of humankind, so we have become what Fleming calls self-exploiters, participants in our own dehumanization, as fully paid-up subscribers to the myth of autonomy and the inevitability, indeed the necessity, for work in the service of the myths of autonomy and fulfillment and economic ideology to colonize human life for the good of humankind. At this point, we will stop and draw breath. In our next episode, we will continue our exploration of what work is from the point of view of Christian theology, teasing out the characteristics of work and trying to bring these together to construct a theological definition of work. But that, as I say, is a task for the next episode. I hope to have the pleasure of your company when we continue that exploration. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of work, faith, theology and economics arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.